Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Anne Marie Slaughter, the Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School. You are here not to hear me, uh, but to hear from Chairman Bernanke. I have lots of wonderful things I'd like to say about Chairman Bernanke, particularly at the culmination of a day-long Woodrow Wilson School conference on public service. Uh, he is one of our poster children for public service. But I'm not going to say things about Chairman Bernanke because I'm going to leave that uh, to Professor Blinder. I am, however, to tell you that when Chairman Bernanke has finished speaking, uh, we will take a few questions from students only. Uh, and st there are two microphones here. Uh, wait until you're recognized. Uh, the microphone will come to you. There is also one microphone uh, uh, upstairs, although I have to tell you it's rather difficult to, uh, to see upstairs, but we'll do our best. So we will take questions, students only. Nobody's slipping in as a student. Let me then uh, introduce Professor Blinder, well known to many of you uh, from Econ 101. Uh, Professor Blinder is the Gordon S. Rentschler Memorial Professor of Economics. He's also the co-director of the Center for Economic Policy Studies, which he founded in 1990. Between 1993 and 1996, uh, he served as a member of President Clinton's Board of Economics. President Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors, and then as Vice Chairman of the Board of, of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Professor Blinder. Uh, thank you, Dean Slaughter, and welcome, everyone. Uh, our illustrious speaker today merits a very long, flowery introduction, but I'm going to give him a short one because no one in this room came here to hear me speak today. Uh, on the other hand, when the chairman of the Federal Reserve talks, people listen. Uh, about four years ago, Ben Bernanke left an academic career that can only be characterized as a smashing success. In addition to serving as a professor of economics and public affairs here for 17 years, Chairman Bernanke, as he is now called, authored stunningly original work on how monetary policy works, chaired the economics department for five years, thereby setting a modern longevity record that I believe may never be broken, <laughs> and edited our profession's most prestigious journal, the American Economic Review, plus lots more. In 2002, just four years ago, he began a brand new career in public service, and his rise in that arena has been meteoric. Three years as a member of the Federal Reserve Board, followed by a six-month stint as chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and now he's beginning what we hope will be a long tenure as chairman of the Fed, where, by the way, he will no longer be allowed to wear tan socks. <laughs> the Federal Reserve holds an almost unique position within the United States government. Its independence from politics gives it authority within its own domain that is rare indeed in our system of government. And that, combined with the dominant position of the United States in the world economy, is why the chairman of the Fed is often described as the most powerful economic policymaker in the world. Ben Bernanke has held this august position for 24 days now, and he's yet to change interest rates. 
But he has already wowed the crowd with his initial congressional testimony, about which it was noted that he answered the questions in clear, intelligible English. Yes, all those years in the Princeton classroom did pay off. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a real honor for me to introduce the new chairman of the Federal Reserve Board to present his first speech in that august capacity. And it is a personal delight for me to introduce an old friend, Ben Bernanke. You know, when I taught Econ 101 at 9 a.m., I never got this kind of attendance. <laughs> I must be getting smarter. I think that must be it. Um, I understand there are distinguished guests here. Congressman Maloney, is she here? Uh, Senator Sarbanes. Um, I understand that uh, Chairman Volcker, Paul Volcker of Class of 49, is, on, is in the premises in the area. I've had a uh, great deal, learned a great deal from him. I've had a few conversations with him as well. And I hope, uh, I hope that he will... Uh, uh, be available for, for further lessons as, as time goes by. Um, it's, really, it's really terrific to have the chance to come back to Princeton, uh, to see so many friends and former colleagues, and in particular to help celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Woodrow Wilson School. I taught at Princeton, as Alan said, for 17 years, uh, more often than not in the deep, dark basement of the Robertson Hall in Bowl One. And I was the chairman of the economics department for seven years, not five years, and I won credit for that. Um, my wife, Ann, and I raised our two children here, and we still think of our home address as Exit 9. Um, as you know, the Woodrow Wilson School is named after a renowned Princeton professor of politics and law, who, having determined from a stint as the president of the university that this institution is basically ungovernable, uh, decided instead to try his hand at public service. I don't presume to draw any comparisons between me and our 28th president, uh, but besides the Princeton affiliation, we do have in common a connection with the Federal Reserve System. President Wilson made the establishment of the Federal Reserve one of his early legislative priorities, signing the Federal Reserve Act into law in December of 1913, less than a year after taking office. Wilson helped to negotiate the complex political compromises that finally gave the nation a permanent central bank following two earlier failed attempts. To simplify a complex history, earlier attempts to stabilize the monetary arrangements of the United States had frequently been roiled by perceived conflicts of interest between, on the one hand, the farmers and tradespeople of Main Street America, who believed that they were most advantaged by policies of easy credit, and on the other hand, the financial barons of Wall Street, who as creditors and bondholders preferred hard money, low inflation policies. Recognizing that all parties would be served by a central bank that could help contain the periodic financial crises that had afflicted the American economy, Wilson worked with Congress to develop a structure for the central bank that finally balanced competing interests and concerns. In particular, the Federal Reserve was given a regional structure with 12 reserve banks that were distributed around the country and empowered to represent sectional interests and respond to local conditions. Although Wilson understood the political and practical advantages of decentralization, he also resisted some powerful proponents of a completely decentralized system by supporting the creation of a board of governors in Washington, on which I now serve, 
which will coordinate the activities of the regional reserve banks. The mandate of the Federal Reserve System has changed since the institution opened its doors in 1914. When the system was founded, its principal legal purpose was to provide an elastic currency, by which was meant a supply of credit that could fluctuate as needed to meet seasonal and other changes in credit demand. In this regard, the Federal Reserve was an immediate success. The seasonal fluctuations that had characterized short-term interest rates before the founding of the Fed were almost immediately eliminated, removing a source of stress from the banking system and from the economy. The Federal Reserve today retains important responsibilities for banking and financial stability, but its formal policy objectives have become much broader. Its current mandate, set formally in law in 1977 and reaffirmed in 2000, requires the Federal Reserve to pursue three objectives through its conduct of monetary policy, maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. One of my goals today is to consider the relationships among these three apparently disparate objectives of monetary policy. In particular, I will argue for what I believe has become the consensus view that the mandated goals of price stability and maximum employment are almost entirely complementary. Central bankers, economists, and other knowledgeable observers around the world agree that price stability both contributes importantly to the economy's growth and employment prospects in the long term and moderates the vol volatility of output and employment in the short to medium term. But that view did not always command the support that it does today. Notably, during the 1960s and early 1970s, some policymakers appeared to believe that price stability and high employment were substitutes, not complements. Specifically, some influential voices of the time argued that by accepting higher inflation, policymakers could bring about a permanently lower rate of unemployment. As I will discuss a bit later, the demise of this view that higher inflation promotes employment in favor of the modern consensus that low inflation and strong employment are complementary goals resulted from the constructive interplay between academic research and practical policymaking experience an interplay that significantly improved policy outcomes and economic welfare in the United States. Of course, fostering this sort of interaction between academic analysis and real-world policymaking is a principal objective of the Woodrow Wilson School. Price stability plays a dual role in modern central banking. It is both an end of policy and a means of policy. As one of the Fed's mandated objectives, price stability itself is an end or a goal of policy. Fundamentally, price stability preserves the integrity and purchasing power of the nation's money. When prices are stable, people can hold money for transactions and other purposes without having to worry that inflation will eat away the real value of their money balances. Equally important, stable prices allow people to rely on the dollar as a measure of value when making long-term contracts engaging in long-term planning, or borrowing or lending for long periods. As economist Martin Feldstein has frequently pointed out, price stability also permits tax laws, accounting rules, and the like to be expressed in dollar terms without being subject to distortions arising from fluctuations in the value of money. Economists like to argue that money belongs in the same class as the wheel and the inclined plane, 
among ancient inventions of great social utility. Price stability allows that invention to work with minimal friction. In principle, the problem of inflation could be reduced by the practice of indexing dollar payments, such as interest and wages, to the price level. But people seem to find indexing costly and avoid it when they can. It's interesting and instructive, for example, that the indexation of wages to prices in labor contracts has always been quite limited in the United States. Some indexation was used during the high inflation 1970s, but the practice has been substantially reduced since then. Moreover, some countries that adopted indexing during high inflation periods, such as Brazil and Israel, largely abandoned the practice when inflation receded. Borrowers and lenders likewise seem to prefer to contract in dollar terms, although inflation-indexed financial instruments have gained wider acceptance in recent years. Borrowing and lending in dollar terms, particularly for long periods, requires confidence that the purchasing power of the currency will be stable and predictable. The savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, which cost U.S. taxpayers roughly $150 billion, is an example of the kind of problem that can arise in the absence of price stability. An important source of the SNL crisis was the unexpected inflation of the 1970s, which greatly reduced the real value of the mortgage loans made by the SNLs in an earlier low-inflation era. These losses effectively decapitalized the savings and loans, helping to set the stage for the problems that followed. Although price stability is an end of monetary policy, it is also a means by which monetary policy can achieve its other objectives. In the jargon, price stability is both a goal and an intermediate target of policy. As I will discuss, when prices are stable, both economic growth and stability are likely to be enhanced and long-term interest rates are likely to be moderate. Thus, even a policymaker who places relatively less weight on price stability as a goal in its own right should be careful to maintain price stability as a means of advancing these other critical objectives. Let me elaborate briefly on the relationship between price stability and the other two goals of monetary policy. First, price stability promotes efficiency and long-term growth by providing a monetary and financial environment in which economic decisions can be made and markets, markets can operate without concern about unpredictable fluctuations in the purchasing power of money. As I've already noted, the dollar provides a reasonably secure gauge of real economic values only when inflation is low and stable. High and variable inflation degrades the quality of the signals coming from the price system as producers and consumers find it difficult to distinguish price changes arising from changes in product supplies and demands from changes arising from general inflation. Because prices constitute a market economy's fundamental means of conveying information, the increased noise associated with high inflation erodes the effectiveness of the market system. High inflation also complicates long-term economic planning, creating incentives for households and firms to shorten the horizons and to spend resources in managing inflation risk rather than focusing on the most productive activities. Research is not definitive about the extent to which price stability enhances economic growth. We don't have controlled experiments in macroeconomics, and inflation and growth are both endogenous variables that jointly respond to many factors. Nevertheless, I am confident that the effect is positive, and I see the international experience as at least consistent with the view that in combination with other sound policies, 
the maintenance of price stability has quite significant benefits for efficiency and growth. That view appears to be widely shared among policymakers, as governments around the world have made extensive efforts to bring inflation down over the past two decades or so with substantial success. More recently, the evidence has mounted not only that low and stable inflation is beneficial for growth and employment in the long term, but also that it contributes importantly to greater stability of output and employment in the short to medium term. Specifically, during the past 20 years or so, in the United States and other industrial countries, the volatility of both inflation and output have significantly decreased, a phenomenon known to economists as the great moderation. This finding challenges some conventional economic views, according to which greater stability of inflation can be achieved only by allowing greater fluctuations in output and employment. The key to explaining why price stability promotes stability in both output and employment is the realization that when inflation itself is well controlled, then the public's expectations of inflation will also be low and stable. In a virtuous circle, stable inflation expectations help the central bank to keep inflation low, even as it retains substantial freedom to respond to disturbances to the broader economy. This mechanism can be illustrated by comparing the effects of the recent rise in oil prices to the effects of the oil price increases in the 1970s. Thirty years ago, the public's expectations of inflation were not well anchored. With little confidence that the Fed would keep inflation low and stable, the public at that time reacted to oil price increases by anticipating that inflation would rise still further. A destabilizing wage price spiral ensued as firms and workers competed to keep up with inflation. The Fed, attempting to gain control of a deteriorating inflation situation, raised interest rates sharply. However, initially at least, these increases proved insufficient to control inflation or inflation expectations, and they added substantially to the volatility of output and employment. The episode highlights the crucial importance of keeping inflation and inflation expectations low, which can be done only through price stability. By contrast, the oil price increases of recent years appears to have had only a limited effect on core inflation, that is, inflation excluding the prices of energy and food. Nor do they appear to have generated significant macroeconomic volatility. Several factors account for the better performance of the economy in this recent episode, including improvements in energy efficiency and in the overall flexibility and resiliency of the economy. But the crucial difference from the 1970s, in my view, is that today inflation expectations are low and stable, as shown, for example, by many surveys and a variety of financial indicators. Oil price increases in the past few years, unlike in the 1970s, have not fed through to any great extent into longer-term inflation expectations or into core inflation, as the public has shown confidence that any increases in inflation will be temporary and that in the long run, inflation will remain low. As a result, the Fed has not had to raise interest rates sharply, as it did in the 1970s, but instead has been able to pursue a policy that is both more gradual and predictable. Of course, the relatively benign state of inflation expectations we enjoy today did not come about automatically. The anchoring of inflation expectations in a narrow range has been the product of Fed policies that have kept actual inflation low in recent years. Clear communication of those policies 
and an institutional commitment to price stability. Price stability also contributes to the third component of the Fed's mandate, the objective of moderate long-term interest rates. As first pointed out by the economist Irving Fisher, unfortunately of Yale, interest rates will tend to move in tandem with changes in expected inflation, as lenders require compensation for the loss in purchasing power of their principal over the period of the loan. When inflation is expected to be low, lenders will require less compensation, and thus interest rates will tend to be low as well. In addition, because price stability and the associated macroeconomic stability reduce the risks of holding long-term bonds and other securities, price stability may also reduce the premiums that lenders charge for bearing risk, lowering the overall level of rates. I have briefly laid out the modern consensus that price stability, besides being desirable in itself, tends also to increase economic growth and stability. As I noted earlier, however, this view is quite different from the one that prevailed 40 years ago. At that time, the ascendant paradigm was that society faced a long-term trade-off between price stability and high employment. Implied in this position was a potential conflict between defenders of, quote, hard money and supporters of easy credit that echoed, at least faintly, the political conflicts that Wilson faced when he set up the Federal Reserve. The development of the modern consensus was a fascinating example of how economic science progresses through the interaction of academic research and policy experience, exactly the kind of activity that the Woodrow Wilson School was designed to promote. Thus, I thought I might briefly describe the evolution of that consensus today. The 1960s idea that greater prosperity could be achieved if only we were willing to accept higher inflation had its origins in an academic study, although the author likely did not intend that outcome. In 1958, A.W. Phillips, using British data, showed that historically inflation had tended to be high in years in which unemployment was low. Similar results were subsequently reported for the United States. Phillips did not draw strong policy conclusions from his findings, but that did not stop others from doing so. In the decade following the publication of his paper, his empirical finding was sometimes interpreted, including, for example, by members of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, as showing that policymakers could choose permanently lower unemployment if they were also willing to accept higher permanent inflation in exchange. Scholars disagree somewhat about the extent to which policymakers of the time actively tried to take advantage of the supposed trade-off, but these ideas likely provided part of the intellectual rationale that made the authorities willing to allow inflation to rise throughout the 1960s and early 1970s. <clears throat> the idea of the permanent trade-off did not go unchallenged, however. In 1967, economists Milton Friedman and Edmund Phelps independently produced influential critiques of this view. Their key contribution was to observe that if inflation expectations react to changes in actual inflation in an economically reasonable way, then any trade-off between inflation and unemployment would be short-lived at best. To illustrate their argument, let us suppose that firms and workers set nominal wages once a year, but that sometime during the year the prices of firms' output would arise unexpectedly as a result of stronger-than-expected demand. The combination of higher prices for their output and fixed nominal wages would raise the profitability of increasing production, and thus, Assuming that more workers are available at the previously fixed wage, firms would respond to the rise in prices by adding workers. Over a short period, then, higher inflation might bring lower unemployment, 
consistent with the empirical results found by Phillips. However, this logic applies only during the period in which wages and workers' expectations of inflation are fixed. If inflation were to rise persistently, Friedman and Phelps argued, workers' expectations of inflation would not remain unchanged, but would adjust to match the actual rate of inflation. Higher inflation expectations would in turn lead workers to bargain for commensurate increases in their nominal wages to preserve the real value of their earnings. With nominal wages rising as well as prices, firms would no longer have an incentive to hire additional workers and employment would return to its normal level. Thus, any attempt to stimulate the economy by choosing a permanently higher level of inflation could not succeed. Such an attempt would leave the economy with higher inflation, but a level of employment no different than would have been otherwise. This work was both brilliant and prescient. In particular, among the seminal contributions of the Friedman and Phelps analyses was the identification of the key role of inflation expectations in determining the behavior of the economy, a point that remains central to our thinking today. Moreover, somewhat unusually, the prediction worked well. The performance of the U.S. economy soon bore out the predictions that Freeman and Phelps made. The inflationary policies of the 1960s led not to permanently lower unemployment, as the permanent trade-off theory predicted, but instead to persistently higher inflation with no improvement in unemployment. For example, in the 1970s, core inflation averaged 6%, compared with 2.25% in the 1960s. And unemployment in the 1970s averaged 6.25%, compared with 4.75% in the 1960s. The volatility of output, and especially inflation, both increased as the Fed struggled to contain inflation expectations. Other factors, including the aforementioned surge in oil prices, played a role in the deterioration of economic performance in the 1970s. Clearly, though, the theory that a long-run trade-off exists between inflation and unemployment had sprung a serious leak. Despite a growing recognition that higher inflation provides no labor market benefits, there was, until the end of the 1970s, little appetite for taking the actions necessary to reduce inflation. For one thing, economists and policymakers recognized that reversing, reversing the rise in inflation expectations that had occurred during the 1970s could take time, and that during that process, the nation could suffer ultimately transitory but still serious increases in unemployment. Furthermore, at the time, it was widely believed among economists that any stable level of inflation was as good as any other. Although the efficiency costs associated with high inflation were acknowledged, the costs were thought to be associated mostly with changes in the underlying rate of inflation, particularly unexpected changes. In addition, many economists at the time argued that the efficiency costs of inflation were not particularly large. Milton Friedman once again was in the vanguard on this issue. In his 1977 Nobel Prize address, Friedman laid out the modern argument that because it harms the efficient operations of markets, high inflation is more likely to raise unemployment than to lower it, and he used the experience of the 1970s to illustrate his point. Indeed, by the late 1970s, even economists who were not part of Friedman's monetarist circle were beginning to study and acknowledge the cost to the economy associated with high inflation. When Federal Reserve Board Chairman Paul Volcker, class of 49, embarked on his campaign to break the back of U.S. inflation in October 1979, he drew on this existing work in defending his program. In his first testimonies and speeches after becoming chairman, Volcker emphasized many of the arguments made by academics 
for how inflation interferes with the efficient workings of the market economy. And he drew on Friedman's monetarist approach, both in his advocacy of low and stable inflation and in its prescriptions for policy implementation. In a speech just given after the Federal Open Market Committee announced its adoption of a monetarist-style policy approach in October 1979, Volcker dismissed the notion that lowering inflation meant accepting permanently higher unemployment and suggested instead that the reverse was more likely to be the case. Until this point, academic research, or at least some of it, had paved the way for improved policymaking. After 1979, however, policymakers themselves began to set the intellectual pace. Volcker's statements from this period in particular are remarkable in the extent to which they anticipate contemporary thinking about the crucial importance of low and stable inflation and inflational expectations. He repeatedly noted, for example, how instability in inflation and expectations were, quote, jeopardizing the orderly functioning of financial and commodity markets. Unlike academics, of course, Volcker was in a position to put his views into practice. Under the Volcker-led Federal Reserve, annual core inflation fell from more than 9% in 1980 to just below 4% in 1987. Alan Greenspan, who succeeded Volcker as Fed chairman in 1987, continued to work to stabilize inflation and inflation expectations. Under Greenspan, the Federal Reserve gradually brought core inflation down further to about 2% in recent years. The Greenspan era also saw important steps towards increased transparency at the Federal Reserve, which helped to clarify the public, for the public the Federal Reserve's strong institutional commitment to price stability. In a sense, Chairman Greenspan had the harder sell. As an economist would say, we might expect diminishing returns from marginal uh, inflation reduction. And yet, I think subsequent events demonstrate the clear benefits from the tenacity of the Fed under Chairman Greenspan. Lower inflation has been accompanied by inflation expectations that are not only lower, but better anchored, as well as far as we can tell. Most striking, Greenspan's tenure aligns closely with the Great Moderation, the reduction in economic volatility that I mentioned earlier, as well as with a strong revival in U.S. productivity growth, developments that had many sources, no doubt, but that were supported, in my view, by monetary stability. Like Volcker, Greenspan was ahead of academic thinking in recognizing the potential benefits of increased price stability. Indeed, in recent years, academic research on monetary policy has caught up with the policymakers, providing new support for what I've termed the modern consensus, that price stability supports both strong growth and stability in output and employment. To sum up, price stability plays a dual role in monetary policy. Stable prices are desirable in themselves and thus are an important goal of monetary policy. But stable prices are also a prerequisite to the achievement of the Federal Reserve's other mandated objectives, high employment and moderate long-term interest rates. In particular, low and stable inflation and inflation expectations enhance both economic growth and economic stability. The complementarity of price stability with the other goals of monetary policy is now the consensus view among economists and central bankers. That consensus has not been achieved easily, however, but is the product of many years of policy experience, policy leadership, and sustained economic analysis. No doubt we will continue to learn about the economy and economic policy, even as we benefit from the insights of those who went before us. And I'm sure the Woodrow Wilson School, its faculty, 
and its students will continue to play an important role in that ongoing process. Thank you very much. The floor is open for students, uh, and if you will, I'll call on you and then wait to, for the microphone. There in the front. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, my question is, do you think the Fed has any role in monitoring the rise of uh, asset price bubbles? And I'd just like to add, go Bulldogs. Add what? What was the last thing? Oh. Go Bulldogs. Um, the Fed's uh, primary role is, as I've described, is price stability, um, maximum sustainable employment, and long, low long-term moderate interest rates. Um, asset prices are important. They are, to some extent, an instrument of Fed policy in the sense that interest rates play a role in transmission of monetary policy. And they're also important in that strong asset price movements affect the economy. When stock prices are high, for example, or home prices are high, the wealth effects will lead to stronger spending and therefore a stronger economy. The Fed has to pay close attention, as we always do, to monetary uh, in monetary policy making, to asset prices in thinking about how to how to proceed. Now, the more controversial question is whether the Fed should in try to in some way affect uh, asset prices, try to manage asset prices. I think it's generally a bad idea for the Fed to be the arbiter of asset prices. In particular, the Fed doesn't really have any better information than other people in the market about what the correct value of asset prices is. Um, moreover, the Fed doesn't really have good instruments for addressing asset price bubbles should they exist, even if they are, uh, particularly if they are in one particular segment or another. Um, I think a much better approach for the Fed in dealing with problems in financial markets is from the microeconomic point of view. For example, we pay a lot of attention to the uh, supervising of banks to make sure that they are taking sound uh, policy, making sound loans. Um, and if we uh, provide good micro policies, I think that the likelihood of asset prices moving in untoward directions is, is lower. So the general answer to your question is asset prices are central to monetary policy making. Um, they play a role in the transmission process, and they are important for our forecasting and thinking about the economy. But I don't think the Fed ought to in intentionally try to manage uh, asset price movements. And the other part of the answer to your question was down with bulldogs. No. Uh, <laughs> there in the, uh, on the aisle there. National savings rate right now is at very historically low levels. Mm -hmm. Do you see this as a problem? And if so, what can and should be done about it? Thanks. Um, it's true the national savings rate is at, is at low levels. I think, I think it is a problem. I think it means that we are uh, building less wealth for the future. Um, there's uh, some things that are going to happen, I hope, naturally, and some things that will happen through policy. Um, on the policy side, uh, over a period of time, it's important for us to bring down the budget deficit, create more savings in the public sector. Um, that's a policy decision and policy action. Um, that we face, of course, as you know, very important long-term challenges on the fiscal side, uh, rising entitlements and the like. Um, on the private side, uh, the 
policy actions to improve saving are controversial. We, there, there have been some that have been tried, some that have been uh, thought to be successful, but, but we have a, there's a lot of uncertainty about, about policy actions to increase savings. I do think that it's likely that we're going to see savings rise from the um, uh, really very low levels that we currently see them. Uh, for example, um, as, uh, as I expect, if home prices uh, rise more gradually in the future than they have in recent years, uh, people will uh, stop letting their homes become sort of the source of their wealth creation and will turn to saving more of their current income. So I think we'll see uh, more saving in the private sector going forward. Finally, um, corporations also say they're an important source of savings, and they have put away quite a bit uh, of retained earnings in recent years, and that does contribute to national saving. One last question. Uh, somewhere there in the – there. Hi, I'm Chairman Banaki. Thank you very much for coming and speaking. Um, I'm studying um, the Chinese economic growth, and the second part of the Woodrow Wilson School of, is public and international affairs. So I'd love to uh, hear your take on um, what international effects China's and India's economic growth will have on America's um, interest rates, America's economic growth. Thank you. That's a, that's a pretty broad question. Um, we, let, me, let, me, let me just focus on, on China for the moment. Much of the same applies to India. Um, China's growth in recent years, in 8, 9, 10% a year, is clearly one of the most important phenomena in the global economy. China has become as emerging as one of the major economic powers in the world, and that fact is going to be with us for a long time, and we need uh, the United States and China need to work together to establish a good economic relationship going forward. There are going to be lots of stresses and strains. In particular, um, uh, China's growth has contributed to higher oil and commodity prices, for example. Um, we have seen uh, stresses and strains over the trade situation, over the currency situation. Um, my own view is that this is a very important relationship. We need to build it constructively, um, and that over time I think we can do that. Uh, but uh, in, in the short term, there's going to be, there's going to be some issues. Uh, just to take one, for example, the, the currency issue, you know there's controversy about, about whether uh, China should keep the yuan at its current level or allow it to appreciate. Um, my own view is that uh, it's in China's interest uh, to allow the yuan to move to a more flexible uh, market-determined level uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, China is unable to have an independent monetary policy unless it has flexibility in the exchange rate. And as a, as a great economy, it's going to need monetary independence in order to manage developments domestically. Um, secondly, the uh, fixed yuan is creating distortions whereby China is becoming uh, excessively export-oriented and insufficiently um, oriented towards domestic production. And ultimately, China needs to produce for its own people as well as for the world market. And finally, um, I think that a more flexible yuan would contribute to greater global financial stability, and China, as an emerging economic power, is going to be, I think, increasingly aware that its interests are aligned with the world's interests in terms of maintaining stability. So that's one area where I think it's in China's interest to, to move towards a more flexible uh, arrangement. Uh, there are many other issues in the trade, uh, the domestic banking system in China, their investment uh, uh, decisions, and of course, the, uh, China's investing at a very rapid rate. Um, so 
moving from the uh, the state-owned enterprises to a more completely market-determined system. All these are important challenges for China, um, both domestically, but also they're going to pose long-term uh, challenges for us in the United States to try to work with the Chinese to make sure that the benefits of their growth are as fully spread around the world as possible. Thank you. I think we're very soon going to make Chairman Bernanke a nostalgic for the days that he was Professor Bernanke and got to ask the questions right. rather than being on the other end of them. Uh, he said uh, some wonderful things about uh, the Woodrow Wilson School. I want to close uh, by noting the ways in which, as Professor Bernanke, uh, he really lived up to Princeton's highest traditions as a teacher. I have heard from many Wilson School alumni uh, in the days since he has been appointed, and one in particular noting not only that he managed to make the dismal science less dismal, but also uh, that he was unfailingly patient uh, with her questions after class and in office hours. And I will, uh, I think, uh, speak for the future Woodrow Wilson School administration and the Princeton administration to say we would welcome you back as Professor Bernanke anytime. Thank you.